What a great morning we've already had of worship, uh, of exhortation, of sharing and testimony from the missionaries that came from our association representing the IMB. And we talked this morning about uh, the mission statement that I, I presented to you last week. And again, if you were not there this morning or you weren't there last week, we said, moving forward, we want to be Cedar Street Baptist Church where heads, hearts, and hands are being transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we said this mission statement is biblical, but it's also tangible, okay? Because the gospel starts with the head, the mind, that being transformed by the renewing of our minds is what Paul tells us in Romans. But then it moves down to the heart, where God changes the things that we love, the things that we fear, and the things that we desire, and we experience this heartfelt relationship and this experience with God. But it shouldn't stop at the head or the heart. It should also be with open hands that we fulfill the gospel call. And as we heard from the missionaries this morning, they've gone out to North Africa and they have opened up their hands to share the gospel with the rest of the world. But we can do that here at Cedar Street Baptist Church as well. So that was our mission statement. And that was given last week. And I pray that God will help all of us to fulfill the mission. Today, I want to share with you the guiding principles that I think the Scripture tells us that we can use as the guardrails that will help us to fulfill this mission that God has given us. But before I get to what those guiding principles are, and if you look at the title of the message today, you can pretty much figure out where I'm headed. The title of my message is Guided by Grace and Truth. Before I talk about grace and truth, I want to ask you this question, very simple question, and I want you to think about it. What is Jesus really like? What is Jesus really like? If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man, unmixed in one person. Okay, that's the cornerstone of our faith. If you've placed your faith in him, he's your Lord and Savior, providing you eternal life. That's who Jesus is, but what's he like? The world's more than happy to present us with their own versions of this character of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, most of them either don't come from Scripture or only take parts of Scripture. Let me give you a couple of these versions, okay? There's, there's multiple versions of what we make out Jesus to be like. But in America in 2016, here's a couple of versions of Jesus. There is what I like to call hippie Jesus. Hippie Jesus is kind of like John Lennon from the Beatles, Okay? Hippie Jesus would say something like, all you need is love. Truth is not as important as peace and love and happiness. Then there's life coach Jesus. Life coach Jesus is kind of like a modern day Anthony Robbins. Life coach Jesus would say something like, I created you to succeed in life. Your health and wealth and your success is waiting right here just for you. If you name it, you can claim it because you're a child of the most high God. Amen. That's life coach Jesus. Then there's Cool Dad Jesus. Cool Dad Jesus is kind of like Matthew McConaughey. Cool Dad Jesus says, nah, I don't have any rules or standards. What is most important is that my children are my friends and I love them. Then there's Motivational Jesus. Motivational Jesus is kind of like Richard Simmons. Motivational Jesus would say, you can do it. I believe in you. You're beautiful. You're strong. You're perfect. Today is your day. Go out and achieve it. Then there's Magic Genie Jesus. Magic Genie Jesus is kind of like the the Disney character Aladdin. And Magic Genie Jesus is up in heaven saying, Child, your wish is my command. If you just say those magic words in Jesus' name, Shazam, I will put a Porsche 911 in your driveway. (laughs) Then there is, and this is for some of our older, more seasoned Christians, there's Disciplinarian Jesus. 
Disciplinarian Jesus is kind of like a college football coach, kind of like Bear Bryant. Disciplinarian Jesus would say, how many chapters of that Bible you read today? I died for you and this is how you live for me. Won't you drop down and give me 20? (laughs) Now all jokes aside, the world that does not know Jesus believes in one of those false versions of Jesus. In fact, I've experienced that in this sanctuary. Last year when I came here to preach revival, I met a man who believed in disciplinary in Jesus. In fact, he's not a member of this church, but he was visiting. And he was a, a true man of God, a sweet man. But he came up to me after one of our revival services and he said, I really appreciate your service, son, but I don't like that song that y'all sang. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, what song was that? He said, uh, <clears throat> I have a friend in God. And he looked right at me and he said, Jesus is not your friend, he's your God. And he's partly right and partly wrong. I opened up the scriptures and I showed him in John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And I said, sir, not only is he our God and not only is he our friend, he's also our brother. Hebrews 2.11 says he is not ashamed to call us brothers. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Church, believing that Jesus is fully God and fully man is the very cornerstone of our faith. But there's a big difference in knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. If our goal is to become more like Jesus then we need to know the characteristics of Jesus that we are called to pursue. The Bible describes many of Christ's wonderful qualities, but there are two defining characteristics that sum up exactly how Jesus lived and how we are to live if we follow him. And those characteristics are grace and truth. In our time today... I want to present the concepts of grace and truth as the guiding principles of how we will do all future ministry here at Cedar Street Baptist Church. If these principles define our Lord and Savior, it is my greatest desire as your pastor that grace and truth will be what defines Cedar Street Baptist Church in the future of this community. So, having said that, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John as we'll be in chapter 1, and please stand together out of reverence of the reading of God's holy word, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 18. Again, this is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, as we find out about the guiding principles of grace and truth. Again, John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we love you. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful day that you have made. And Father, we thank you for your Son who came full of grace and truth. And we thank you through redemption made possible by your Son that we also can serve you in ministry 
through the guide rails of grace and truth. Father, I pray as we open up your word and consider what the Apostle John has to teach us through the guidance of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts to understand and receive these concepts of grace and truth, and that we would respond to the message this morning in repentance and faith as we seek to do your will. Father, again, be with me. I pray that you would quiet my heart and mind and that you would take my tongue captive, uh, that the words, the honor, the glory would all be yours. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Grace and truth. I really pray before we leave today, we will all have a good working definition of what grace and truth really is. Because if we know grace and truth, then I think we know Jesus. And we also know what our calling is. But before we get to the concepts of grace and truth, I kind of want to walk through the text verse by verse and give a full context of where we're at here in Scripture. We're in the Gospel of John. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And John's just a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar. Some people call them the synoptic Gospels because they're so similar. Then John is very much different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of course, all the Gospels point to the earthly ministry of Jesus. But if you want to know the mission statement of the book of John, John gives it to you towards the end of the book. I love when an author tells you why he's writing a book. And John says in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these, meaning the accounts of Jesus, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have the whole purpose statement for the whole book of John in chapter 20, verse 31. He's describing who Jesus is, but he's also giving us a description of what Jesus is like. So that in knowing what he's like and who he is, We can respond in repentance and faith and follow him and imitate him. But let's look at the context. Starting in verse 14, John presents this idea of the word made flesh. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does the word made flesh mean? Let's, use, let's define our terms, okay? We can be in church for years and years and, and talk about, well, he's the word made flesh. What does that mean? Let me put it in terms that years ago were put in, in ways that I understood. When God wanted to reveal to you who he was and who he is, he did it in two ways. He did it through what's called general revelation, and he did it through what's called special revelation, okay? General revelation is nature, That's why atheists who have never heard the account of the Gospels, they still have no excuse at the day of judgment because God has created nature in such a way that when you walk around and you see blue skies and green grass and all the creatures of the the world, you look and say, someone created this. There is a creator. That's general revelation. God generally revealed that he is in existence. But God also gave us special revelation because you know that God exists through nature, but you don't know enough about who he is just by walking outside. You just know that he exists. But he gave us special revelation. We call that revelation the word. The word is his self-expression. It's who he is, how he feels, why he does what he does. He doesn't tell us everything about himself, but he tells us what he wants us to know. And that word is given to us in two ways. We have the written word, the Holy Scriptures, and we have the word made flesh, and that is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is God in human form so that you could look at Jesus and know what God is like. It says in the 15th chapter of John, as Philip was asking Jesus, tell us what the Father is like. And Jesus is saying, you've been following me all this time and you're still not getting it. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Okay, so Jesus is the self-revelation of God. He's the Word in human flesh. And that's exactly what John's saying here in verse 14. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now let's move down to verse 15. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now this can get confusing because there's two different Johns here. Okay, there's the author of the gospel, the book of uh, the gospel according to John. But then there's John the Baptist, and that's who he's talking about in this passage. When it says John bore witness about him, he's talking about this prophecy that happened hundreds of years before Jesus and John the Baptist ever came on the scene. They said there would be a messenger in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. And so when John John the Baptist comes on the scene, he's, he's bearing witness about who Jesus is. Now here's the thing. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, okay? We see in the Gospels that Elizabeth, who bore John, was a cousin of Mary, who bore Jesus, and John the Baptist was born physically before Jesus. But at the same time, even though Jesus was born in human flesh, he also is God and has always existed. He never not existed. He just came into existence as a human being through the birth of Mary, okay? So... John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, he was born after him, ranks before him because he was before him. He came before him because he's God and he always existed. And let's look at verses 16 through 17 as we continue to work down the passage here. Here's where we begin to see a repetition of this idea of grace and truth. It's kind of a repeated concept of verse 14. Verses 16 through 17 say this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One thing that John does, and a lot of the gospel writers do this, but especially John, it's just a part of his nature. He does it in Revelation, he does it in his letters, and he does it in the gospel. He takes these ideas and he repeats them over and over and over. And when you see repetition in a a book of the Bible, if you see repetition, know the author's trying to get your attention. All right, we saw in verse 14, it said that, uh, that the word made flesh was full of grace and truth. And then we see in 16 through 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think John's trying to tell us something is really important about this idea of grace and truth. Well, what is it? You have to hang on just a minute because we're not quite there yet. All right, then we get to verse 18. And verse 18 says, this is kind of another repetition of verse 14. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's saying the same thing he said in verse 14. He's saying, nobody's ever seen God with their eyes. We don't see God because God is spirit. However, Jesus Christ has made him known because he took on flesh. As it says in Colossians, he's the invisible God made visible. So again, we go back to John 15 where Philip is saying, tell us what the Father is like. And Jesus is saying, if you're looking at me, you know what the Father is like because I am God. So again, we know Jesus is fully God, fully man. We know he came in grace and truth. Now the question is, what is grace and truth? 
If we're supposed to imitate our Lord and Savior, and He came full of grace and truth, we need to know what that is, and we need to define our terms. So, I want to make four statements about grace and truth. Okay, and the first of those four statements that I'd like to make is this. Number one, grace is the unmerited blessing of God. Grace is the unmerited blessing of God. If you want to use a simpler term than unmerited, it's undeserved. Grace is the undeserved blessing of God. Uh, Dallas Willard, the late Christian philosopher, had a great definition for grace. When we think of grace, typically we think of forgiveness of sins, right? And that's a big part of it, but that's incomplete. Dallas Willard says this. He says, grace is more than forgiveness of our sin. Grace is God acting in my life to accomplish what I cannot accomplish on my own. Let me say that again. Grace is God acting in my life to accomplish what I cannot accomplish on my own. Okay, think of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of grace was basically a lot of forgiveness and mercy. But in the New Testament, not only do we talk about forgiveness and mercy when we talk about grace, but we also talk about God's provision and his power in our lives to do things that we can't do ourselves. Think about this. When you're at the dinner table and you're getting ready to say grace, why do you say grace? Because as you sit at the table, you are acknowledging that God has provided for you your daily bread. We, we stop and we forget sometimes because we have well-paying jobs and we take the money that we've earned and we go to the grocery store. We have this illusion that somehow we've provided for ourselves. Fact of the matter is everything comes from his gracious hand. So when we say grace, we are acknowledging that this food that God has bestowed on our table is an unmerited blessing of God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God loves us. He provides for us. And we acknowledge in saying grace that it is a gift. Every single, let me tell you something, and God has some great gifts in Metter, Georgia. I have missed Papa Bucks. <laughs> My wife will tell you ranch-style potato salad is grace. <laughs> it is a wonderful gift. We have missed it. We are so grateful to be back. But again, grace is unmerited, meaning it's not something you can earn and therefore lose. It's a gift to be received. Grace is a gift to be received. And your response to grace as a follower in Christ is to be humble and show mercy towards others. That's how we offer grace. Humility is acknowledging that we have nothing to bring to the table apart from what God has done for us. And mercy is giving other people the opportunity and the time to respond to God the way that we already have. That's grace. Humility. Mercy. Offering people what they don't even deserve because you yourself did not deserve it when God offered it to you. That's a church that has grace. But number two, if we're talking about statements of grace and truth, number two, truth is the unchanging reality of God. And the world outside the walls of this church, the world that doesn't believe in Jesus, hates this. Because the world constantly wants to redefine truth. But truth is not something you define, it just is. Truth is more than mere facts. It's the reality of a universe created by a sovereign God. Truth is not something we define. It's something we discover. It doesn't come from the inside out. It comes from the outside in. When you walk into the math classroom, okay, students, school has started. If you go into math and, you, and they tell you 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you say, well, that's what it means to you. That's not what it means to me. I think your math teacher would have, have a sit down with you and say, I think we need to have a talk. 
All right, truth just is. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It is either true or it's not true. And what is true in the classroom is also true of the Scriptures. When the 66 books of Scripture were collected and placed in this one book that we call the Bible, the early church fathers, they didn't define what was God's Word. They simply recognized what was God's Word. The truth of God confirmed by the Spirit of God, it radiated off the, over, over these 66 books. And the early church, they didn't define it. They didn't say, this is God's Word, this is not God's Word. They didn't do anything to define what's in this book. They simply discovered and acknowledged what already was the Word of God. You cannot define truth. You can only discover it. But there are many people of other faiths, maybe even in this room today, you're a seeker and, and you're wanting to know more about God and you were raised in a different faith. And you say, well, other religions have a holy book. They have what they call their own scriptures. What makes the Bible the only true scriptures? Well, the Bible's the only book that uniquely defines the problem of mankind, which is sin that has separated man from God and offered a final solution to the problem which is believing in Jesus Christ who is both man and God and who lived the way that we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, took on our our penalty and gave us his rewards of righteousness. No other faith can offer that. No other faith is, is God looking down at man and man looking up at God at the very same time so that you could take the hand of God and the hand of man and reunite them once again. That's what happened on that cross. And that's what separates Christianity from every other faith. But what do we do with this truth that I just mentioned? Okay, we, all right, now we acknowledge the Bible is truth. I just shared the gospel. The gospel is truth. What do you do with it? Well, the Bible tells us there's four primary ways that we respond to the truth. Number one, we need to believe the truth. Okay, most famous passage quoted in scriptures, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, but we don't just believe it, we walk in it. Third uh, John 1.3 says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. But we don't just believe it. We don't just walk in it. We're commanded to love it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, as Satan's deceptions were preventing many to come to salvation, it says, They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And then finally, we talked about this this morning. We have to share the truth. We have to share the truth. Matthew 28 is the famous Great Commission passage in the New Testament. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. You know, it's funny. I, w- I took an evangelism class, and we had an Asian student. His last name was Lo. And the KJV version says, Lo, I am with you always. And every time the professor called roll, he said, Lo, I am with you always. And I've never forgotten that. It's a great reminder of, uh, of, the, of the Great Commission. So, um, again, number two, truth is the unchanging reality of God. But let's, let's dig a step further, okay? We're getting a little bit closer to our definitions of grace and truth. All right, we said grace is the unmerited blessing of God. We said that truth is the unchanging reality of God. Now, number three, grace and truth unite through the Son of God. 
Grace and truth unite through the Son of God. We, we read that here towards the end of the passage here. We said, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only has truth, but he is truth. John chapter 14, verse 6 says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But in that truth, he is also the embodiment of grace. Think about the cornerstone of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now think about this. Think about the balancing of grace and truth. And I'm going to get real practical with you here in a minute. Okay? If Jesus was all truth and no grace... He would never have offered salvation. If he was all grace and no truth, he never would have accomplished salvation. He had to be born miraculously, live perfectly, die sacrificially, be raised supernaturally, and ascend heavenly for us to be saved. But who he is and what he did is personified in grace and truth, and in Christ, these two principles can never be separated. Again, we talked about all those false versions of Christ. When I was reading hippie Jesus and cool dad Jesus, some of those were grace-filled ideas of Jesus, and some of those were truth-filled ideas of Jesus, but not one of those that I read when I first started this message today were a Jesus full of both grace and truth. You cannot separate them in the life of Jesus, and you should not separate them in the life of anyone who wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus was the instrument that brought grace and truth into the world, and these principles define both his character and his ministry, then we need to be people committed to living and serving in both grace and truth. That brings me to my conclusion. Grace and truth guide the people of God. We said that grace is the unmerited blessing of God, truth is the unchanging reality of God, And grace and truth unite through the Son of God. So again, our conclusion, grace and truth guide the people of God. Think about this, especially the kids. You guys go bowling? All right, kids go bowling? At least until I was about a teenager, I went bumper bowling. I love bumper bowling. It just keeps the numbers up for me. I could still use some bumpers when I go bowling. All right, the bumpers are just these, well, at least when I was growing up, they were inflatable bumpers that were stuck in in the bowling gutters. So that when you rolled your ball, if you got too far to one side or the other, it kept your ball in the middle of the lane. Think about that illustration when it comes to grace and truth. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to be a person of grace and a person of truth. And because of your personalities and because of your experiences in life, I guarantee everyone in this room leans a little bit too far in one direction or the other. We all struggle with that. But let's talk about the dangers of someone who is too far in one direction. All right? Well, let me say this quote before I do that. Martin Luther, the great reformer and, and uh, certainly one of the great hands that God used to start the Reformation, to have a Protestant denomination like Southern Baptist that we have today. Martin Luther said once, the devil doesn't care what side of the horse we fall off as long as we don't stay in the saddle. And, and we could fall off on the side of too much grace, not enough truth, or too much truth and not enough grace. We need the stirrups of grace and truth to keep us in the saddle. Now... Let me take this message and drive up in your driveway and meet you where you live right now, okay? Here's someone who is all grace and no truth. Someone who is all grace and no truth typically says the words, 
It ain't my place to judge. I just love people, and that's what I do. I ain't judging nobody. I'm just going to love everybody, and that ain't my place. Well, let me tell you something. That's one of the great misinterpretations of Scripture because Jesus says, judge not lest you've been judged yourself, but he's not talking about all judgment. Okay, we'll talk about this maybe on a Sunday night. But Jesus does say, in fact, you are called to judge. Now, you never are called to judge anyone to condemnation. That's not your role. And that's what Jesus is talking about in that passage when he says, judge not lest you be judged yourself. But he does tell you later on in that same book that you need to judge what's right and what's wrong. And if someone that you love is living in in a wrong way, you need to judge and you need to share that judgment. You need to say, listen, according to God's holy word and his standards, you are not living according to his word. That's truth. That's truth. Now, what about churches who are all grace and no truth? Churches who are all grace and no truth will preach a gospel that sounds something like this. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. There's more emphasis on church attendance and behavior and not so much on church holiness. It's all about maintaining unity no matter what. Now, unity is extremely important. That's why I think one of the primary characteristics a pastor should have is to be a natural peacemaker. When I meet pastors who like to stir the pot, I get nervous because that's not the description of what God calls an elder or pastor to be. So I I come here as a peacemaker. I want unity, but not above holiness, not above those who are living outside the will of God and want to come into church and just say, I want to live the way I want to live, and I want to have Jesus on my own terms. That's someone who's all grace and no truth, and that's a church that's all grace and no truth. Now let's turn the page to the other side. Okay, what about someone who's all truth and no grace? Someone who's all truth and no grace will say, I just tell it like it is. All right, has anyone ever told you, man, you tell the truth. You just get up there and you tell it like it is and you just don't care. They either take it or leave it. I'm just going to tell the truth. Well, you know what? If that's who you are, you're not fully representing Jesus Christ. Okay, you're all truth, but you're not grace. Think about a church that's all truth and no grace. We've probably all seen churches like this. A church that's all truth and no grace would say something like, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it for me, amen? That's all truth and no grace. Think about when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. The people that, get, that were merciful and patient towards you as you began to learn and to grow. There are people in this church right now who are baby Christians, and maybe some of them haven't even professed faith, and they want to understand the Bible. And the Bible is very difficult to understand. And they want to live according to Jesus, but they've never done it before. They need time. They need mercy. They need discipleship. They need grace. If someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ from a hole in the wall comes into the doors of this church and sits in this sanctuary, I want them to feel welcome. I want them to feel like they are where they need to be that we will love them and that we will support them and that we will teach them and that we will disciple them. Also, that we will stand on truth. Okay? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. We see churches and individuals who have too much grace or too much truth and they get out of whack. Randy Alcorn wrote a book. It's called The Grace and Truth Paradox. It's a little short book. You can read it in one sitting. It's one of the great books on this topic that I've read. And Randy Alcorn said this. He said, if we minimize grace, the world sees no hope for salvation. If we minimize truth, the world sees no need for salvation. And then he goes on to use this beautiful illustration. As we come to a close, I want to put this picture in your mind. He said, when a musical instrument's strings go loose, it sounds awful. 
but you can also over-tighten the strings, breaking them and creating discord. There's a perfect tension to grace and truth that makes the gospel's music. Isn't that right, Kyle Tucker? You get a guitar in your hand, you keep them too loose, you're not going to be playing for long, but you, you tighten those strings up too tight, you're not, the, the guitar is not going to work. It's got to have the perfect tension. And there is tension between grace and truth. Because if you read the scriptures, there are passages that sound a lot more like truth than grace. And if I go word by word through the scriptures, there are weeks that you're going to hear truth unashamedly proclaimed from this pulpit. But then there are, there are passages that sound a lot more like grace. But why, why is there 66 books in the Bible? Because both grace and truth exist. And if a church is truly on mission, a church has to be filled with both grace and truth. I'll close by saying this. Here's a sobering reminder for your pastor. When I was at seminary, I remember one of the professors in my class said this. He said, if you're at a church more than five years, your church will take on your personality. If a a pastor is at a church for more than five years, the congregation over the course of time will begin to take on that personality, which means if the pastor is not evangelistically or missions-driven, the church is not going to be evangelistically and missions-driven. And when it comes to grace and truth, if that pastor is all truth and no grace, then the church is going to go out in the community and start pointing fingers at other people and saying, get right with Jesus, get right with Jesus. But if the pastor is all grace and no truth then they're never going to get to the fact that we're sinners and we need to confront one another and say, brother, I love you, but you're living in sin and you need to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. There's eternity at stake. I, don't, I, I know many mistakes lie ahead for me as a pastor. I have so much to learn. But my prayer would be however long God would have Ashley and I to be, and we've prayed for 30 years. We'll ask God to give us direction on how many years that will be. My prayer is that as Cedar Street Baptist Church, we will be known in this community as a church of grace and truth. Not one or the other, both working together. That is my prayer for you and for us as Cedar Street Baptist Church. And so, as we enter into a time of invitation, I just want to ask you this. Are you willing to follow me as I follow Christ in grace and truth? And if you're not a Christian, do you know the truth? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that when you die, no matter how good a life you think you've lived, that you will stand before God at the day of judgment and you'll be judged according to his holy standard of perfection? And no one has lived that standard except for one. Here's where the grace comes. That's Jesus Christ. For 33 years, he lived perfectly doing everything you should have done. Then he died sacrificially, taking on all the sins on the cross that you deserved. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he made a way from death to life, and he offered this grace. And your response, as with anything in grace, is to receive it. And you receive it in repentance and faith. So I'll pray here in a moment, and then we'll sing and have a time of invitation. These altars are open, and I pray. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, here's the truth aspect. Don't leave this place today. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you do know Jesus, but maybe you've been living outside the boundaries of grace and truth. Maybe today's a day to get right with him down here. Come and bow your knee and confess with your tongue that you need him to guide you in the ways of grace and truth. Whatever the case may be, I pray that you be obedient to the Lord's calling on your heart as we enter into this invitation.
And having said that, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. We are so grateful for this day. Father, again, we thank you for these guiding principles of grace and truth embodied in your Son. Father, I confess to you that myself and everyone in this room, we lean in one direction or we lean in the other. We struggle. We're sinners. We are too grace-filled or too truth-filled and never have a good, sweet balance of both. And that's why we need your Son, Father. We need your Son. Help us to be people of grace and truth. Heavenly Father, if anyone in this room has never professed faith in Christ be bold in their hearts right now that they, in the conviction they would respond and come and give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Father, and thank you and praise you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what we know that you will do in grace and truth here at Cedar Street Baptist Church. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.